Welcome back to Unstructured. Today we have Donna Barrow Green. I met Donna in a podcasting group where we were offering to review each other's podcasts to kind of see what everybody was doing. And I discovered that her new podcast, The Diarist, was just something completely different. I actually see this as um, becoming podcasting 2.0. It's not exactly along the lines of serial. It is actually almost going back in time into a radio play. And since when I grew up, I used to listen to tapes of Sherlock Holmes and other things like that. I really enjoyed listening to this suspense drama. And it is a multicast performance. She has a ton of Foley in there, door sounds, engines, phone ringing, all the sound effects. So you can really get immersed in that. So welcome, Donna. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Now, I understand that you are, let's see, you're a writer, you're a researcher, you're a college instructor, you have a PhD in education, you teach psychology courses, um, you're also a mother and a wife, and when do you find time to breathe? <laughs> well, um, I only teach part-time, so that helps, okay. and uh, my daughter's 16, so that helps. Um, she's older and doing her own thing now. So I find I have a lot of time and, um, to write and the podcasting does take a lot more time than I anticipated. Um, it's a, it's a much bigger endeavor than I originally thought. Now, I find that very interesting because you are not actually on the podcast. You're a co-director of it. I wrote the podcast, um, and I co-produce and I co-direct and I do the sound too. Okay. Do my yeah. Okay, so you did the sound effects, but um, why not act on it? Uh, because I'm not a I'm I'm not a good actor. Um, I'm not a very good actor, and I really wanted to cast it with some professional actors who are talented and um, can really embody the characters. And I feel I feel like it was kind of a perfect uh, match between the show and the actors that I found, which I feel really lucky about um because i've done um i've done stage readings of plays and that kind of thing and and often the actors are really good but every now and again i'll have an actor that doesn't fit and it just sinks the whole the whole part now how did you go about casting this because it, obviously in this case you're not worried about looks i mean you could have a, right. a, a female who's six foot two and a guy who's uh, five foot one etc right. so did you cast blind well, actually, um, I live in Portland, Oregon, and I've done a few um, theater uh, pieces here. And one of the actors, the lead, Beth Ricketson, who's also co-directing and co-producing, um, I knew her. So I approached her and she uh, brought on our other co-producer, Ryan Bowen. And then the three of us together, originally when we started the show, um, we had no idea. It was actually, they were, we were kind of reading from the novel and then um, they were kind of, we were kind of acting out the dialogue, but I felt that didn't have the full um, experience that we were looking for. So I ended up writing the script after we started. So it's been like this major learning curve. 
Um, but they helped me cast. And then I did call out for um, one of the other main characters and found a, a woman who had just graduated from Reed College in their theater program. Hmm, Steve Jobs, old school. Yes, yes. It's uh, They have a great program and the woman ended up being fantastic. She plays Margaret. Okay. And um, so this was a novel to begin with. Mm-hmm. And wh- where was that published? It's um, all of my novels are they're um, they're on Wattpad. And so I have a, a bunch of novels there and I'm still in, they're on Wattpad because I'm still in the process of editing them. But I've kind of been on this um, creative spurt for a long time. So I just want to keep writing. So once that slows down, I'll start editing and um, but now I'm getting kind of addicted to adapting them. So I'm thinking of another one for the next season. So now what is Wattpad exactly? Wattpad is like um, YouTube for books. So, and it's so, so it's a platform for writers to publish um, their writing and then um, get readers. And so it's, it's actually pretty huge. A lot of it is, more fan fiction or younger people publishing, but there's a lot of people my age, um, middle-aged and, uh, yeah. And it's actually been a great, um, experience because I've connected with so many, um, great writers. I've interviewed writers and then I've gotten a lot of feedback on my work. Um, one of my stories was actually featured on one of my novels was featured, which is kind of a, a great thing because then it's exposed to, to like literally millions of readers. So it's been cream of the crop or something like that. Yeah. That's what they say. Yeah. Okay. And let me see a hundred thousand reads on that. Yeah. Now, now truthfully, I think in modern publishing, um, when I wrote my books back in the day, they were saying that if I got 10,000, that was a really good deal, Right. you know, in terms of sales. So a hundred thousand reads is some solid numbers. Um, you gave the impression that they're works in progress. though. have you thought about actually finishing and, publishing them out or well they're finished most of them all of them on Wattpad are finished um but the publishing piece you know I was working on my dissertation which I just I just finished last October um and that was you know as you can imagine you <laughs> really a, a, quite a lot of work and then um and then I just keep writing so the books are finished and they're they're readable but they mm-hmm. just need editing in terms of um grammar and you know, that kind of thing, I think, before I could submit it to um, any of the big publishing houses or. Have you thought about hiring someone? I have, you know, I hired someone for my dissertation and it was pretty expensive. So, mm-hmm. and I'm not, you know, I'm not in a huge rush to do that, but I would like to at some point. Sure. Yeah. Well, cool. And I, I love the fact that you're adapting it. Now, I understand you've written other plays. Yes. So you're definitely a playwright. Um, how did those do for you? They, um, small, small time, uh, uh, ex- I guess, recognition. I had one of my plays won a festival here in Portland. Um, it was uh, for this group called the Portland Civic Theater Guild. And they, for the, they have a fertile ground festival here every year. And, and pretty much anyone uh, can have plays produced or, you know, so it go, it runs the gamut from brand new plays by um, writers who are producing all the way up to, you know, the, some of the top um, theater venues here. And so one of the um, theater venues had a contest and one of my plays won. And so they did a, a stage reading, which was 
it was great. It was great actors. It was great to see it. And then I've staged a few of my own for readings, not full productions. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. So in essence, that led almost naturally into doing the podcast mm-hmm. or radio drama. Yeah, it did. Um, it, it, um, I hadn't actually written a play in a long time. I had been writing fiction for years and years. And I actually, right before the podcast, I was like, I was wondering if I could switch um, back to writing scripts because it's so, it's so, they're both technical, but you know, script writing is a pretty, um, it's a pretty technical thing that's supposed to look natural, you know? So it's like, I didn't know if I still had that. So it was great to be um, inspired by this project and then jump back in. What is your process like now? Initially, you you wrote them outright, but now it's you're kind of um, writing as you go. It, it well, yeah, I ended up pretty quickly writing the first twelve ten episodes, and and then I made sure I because with the novel I was actually um, not finished with it, so I was like three quarters of the way through it, but I knew what was going to happen, but I hadn't finished writing it. So then those were pretty easy to adapt. So I adapted the first 10 episodes and now I'm, um, but then I quickly went through and made sure that the plot worked. So I um, sketched out the last episodes because, you know, if the plot doesn't work, you know, um, and then, uh, and now I'm writing those. Okay. So when, um, when do you anticipate it being wrapped up? Uh, Probably early fall. Um, we're, we're on a schedule of releasing every two weeks. And, um, and I, I do foresee that, you know, we've, we've, uh, planned out the, uh, recording sessions and, and I'm pretty confident because most of the, most of the remaining episodes are drafted. So I'm pretty confident we can keep to that mm-hmm. schedule. Now by writing it organically with the actors in hand, has that helped the process at all? Because you have their actual voice tonality, rhythms things like it had maybe didn't match your head exactly you know it, it's it's so different writing um because i'm a kind of i'm the kind of person that um you know i get into a certain space when i'm writing i'm not um i just kind of let it flow and i'm not you know i'm not somebody who collaborates on the writing part i'll collaborate on the directing i'll even you know release to a director um but with the writing i'm pretty like it's a pretty personal experience but um, it's been really cool writing with these actors because I really trust them. And, and, you know, Beth as a co-director and also there, you know, it's funny. I usually, a lot of my stories center on women and mental illness and, um, you know, sort of patriarchy and the dynamics of, um, you know, culture that, you know, is um, misogynistic for, for lack of a better word. So usually the, my stories go kind of down some familiar tropes in terms of, um, in terms of what happens to the women. And so I have a, Beth is like a very feminist. Um, she's a a great actor, theater professional, and she was kind of like not super excited about that trope. And I, it actually kind of changed the direction of the story actually just having that experience with her. Hmm. Yeah. I, I definitely have sensed that theme. I've gotten the impression reading um, interviews with you, et cetera, that you kind of have a a background, um, a a personal life only with with what you studied. Um, 
what happened? What in general in terms? General terms? Um, well, I was raised. So I was born in '65. So I was raised on the. T- I was raised actually. A lot of my childhood was during, um, you know, height of a, a wave of feminism, and um, so I have that like kind of informing or in the backdrop of my childhood experiences. And then my mother had very serious mental illness and both of my parents had a lot of problems with substance abuse and, um, and I was abused as a child. And then later on in life, I experienced sexual violence by a stranger. So I have all of these um, experiences that together inform, um, I think my writing in terms of looking at how trauma and, um, sort of the socio-historical context and then the personal experience, which I think a lot of times, a lot of times in society or in culture, it kind of gets just like a personal experience gets kind of distilled into something that's almost stereotypical. And, you know, like, and what I mean by that is like in one of my novels, um, this woman, it's in the 1940s. Well, actually, it's a series of five novels because I couldn't, <laughs> I wanted to stop the story and it wouldn't stop. And I was like, I tried all these things to stop the story because I wanted my life back. But it was the 1940s and she engaged in this relationship with a married man and ends up becoming pregnant. And so the consequences of that, um, and eventually this man becomes, um, without saying too much, he becomes very abusive to her. But as the five novels go on, that becomes less clear and she becomes more complicit in this experience. And then his dynamics change it. Yeah, Stockholm, but it's but I think knowledge. like some of the people who've read it um, on Wattpad have been, you know, I've said this is such a romantic love story. And so I I felt like if I could take it from this from real violence and domestic violence, not, um, you know, not sugarcoated mm-hmm. to, to the fifth novel where people are feeling bad because they have such a romantic love affair. I feel like that speaks to the complexity of mm. domestic violence and the real experience, you know, I know most women don't, I don't know. Anyway, that's a longer story. No, no, that's fine. Um, in the diarist, it seems like, um, Mm -hmm. Richard is essentially gaslighting her quite a lot. Um, now in your background, I'm guessing you may have dealt with some of that yourself, but you also Mm -hmm. are teaching psychology courses and it sounds like you're working with people as well. Um, are you working a lot with, with trauma survivors and things of that sort or people of that sort? Well, yeah, I, I actually teach, um, in an infant mental health program and the major focus is the effects of trauma on later development. And so, uh, a lot of what we focus on is intervention to, um, as early as possible intercede and, um, sort of uh, rebuild that parent child relationship so that trauma is, um, is mitigated and, um, and they're supported in having that responsive, loving relationship. And so a lot of my understanding of trauma comes from, you know, brain research and the later effects of um, early trauma, especially birth to three. And that can be, you know, abuse that can be neglect that can be, um, the effects of disaster. I mean, trauma has a very specific um, impact on brain development in that in that period, and then that affects later behavior and relationships. And um, yeah, so I feel like that's a foundation for a lot of it. So, in essence, you're maybe training the parents to help guide them 
um, out of the toxicity of what's going on? That's a really big part of it. So there's like, um, there's kind of several components. There's like the policy prevention piece where you look at um, what systems are in place to um, support parents in doing that early on. So is, are there, um, are there programs where parents can seek help for like substance abuse or, you know, poverty? I think, you know, again, when we look at sort of the realities of people's experiences, you know, I interviewed a, a social worker from a, a neonatal intensive care unit. And she said, you know, often parents come in, you know, their child's in neonatal intensive care because of um, substance exposure in, you know, during pregnancy and they're homeless. So after the child has been, you know, stabilized in the NICU, they send them back out on the street. And I'm like, well, that's not going to mm. work, you know? I mean, um, and so there are things like that, you know, that, um, so there are prevention, there's prevention models. And then a, a big focus is also intervention with families and collaborating together and um, working on both the um, contextual factors that contribute to the trauma, but also the direct parent-child relationship and getting that kind of in harmony. I see. And is it fair to say that um, the parents often suffered their own trauma and this is just a, yeah. a loop, yeah. a feedback loop? Yeah, that's, I think, very accurate. And I think, you know, there's a lot of research out there on transmission of trauma. And so something you, I remember someone had said uh, in a class that I took, a professor was talking about um, trauma like war or like the Holocaust and how even in just subtle um, responses to their child to trauma triggers, that child will then, um, will then have a traumatic, you know, PTSD experience second, you know, second hand really. That's interesting. Is that sort of like, um, most of those who grew up in the, I don't know, not greatest generation, the generation right after them are traumatized by the great. Oh, depression. that's interesting. I would say probably depending on the family's experience. Yeah. Like the elderly now tend to be very, um, not exactly penny pitching, yeah. but they're very concerned about yeah. scarcity and almost to a silly degree where you, you look at them and go, why? But then you, realize that they grew up yeah. with little. Yeah, that's prob definitely probably um, impacts a lot of um, a lot of people's experiences back then. And I think now, you know, I have a 16 year old daughter and she grew up with um, active shooter drills at her school from a very young age. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't at her at her. Well, now she's in high school, but when she was in middle school, I didn't know. But they would have an active shooter drill where they wouldn't tell the kids whether or not someone was really in the building. And I thought, Oh my God, that is like, hmm. you know, that's terrifying. And, um, doesn't that induce the trauma versus prevent? I think that's something that we're going to see, you know, is that these, not only the events themselves, but the preparations for them and the, um, you know, just yesterday at, we're in Portland and my daughter goes to school downtown and there was a, a driver, a block from her school that, drove on the sidewalk and hit three people. They don't know exactly what happened, but just, I think exposure, I don't know what the impact of that, these experiences are going to be. Um, but as a society, we're, we're, I think we're experiencing a lot of trauma, especially the kids. It's fascinating. I, I feel like um, it, it's easy to beat up on the next generation, but now I've 
you know, I look at some of them like, geez, I, yeah. Um, you, you screw up or do something. It's, uh, it's online and digital stone forever. Right. Um, I, I was an idiot as a kid. I think everybody is. Yeah. That's kind of mandatory. Right. But now there's a lot of very troubling things over sexualization mm-hmm. uh, with Snapchat and different, you know, different things. Yep. And I, <laughs> I imagine it's, it's difficult for your daughter to navigate through and difficult for you. Yeah. Well, and that, I, I mean, I worry about that too. It's, um, you know, it's such a different world and yeah, exactly. I mean, I did, I have a memoir that I wrote from when I, uh, looking back when I was 40, I wrote it on when I was 15 and some of the, um, you know, experiences I had with my mom with, she was actively psychotic during that time. And I was coming of age and getting involved in drinking. And, and I, a lot of times with my daughter, I think, oh my God, if I was raised in this time, I don't think the, uh, I don't think it would be good, you know, um, at all, you know, because it's like, you did have the safety of anonymity or, you know, no, like you said, no record in stone of your behavior. Right. Um, although I guess I wrote about it, so it's, I recorded it in stone, but you know, it's not like the internet. Well, well, especially, I mean, it depends because you fictionalize a lot of it, but what, what was your mother's condition exactly? <laughs> Sorry, I have a, um, she, it's interesting because I'm going to be, um, working with someone on a story about her. Um, she was very mad. So in, so in, it was the 70, the sixties and seventies, right? So she was very mentally ill. She, you know, she had different diagnoses, but, um, but it was never really clear. She was medicated a lot. And what was really interesting, and this is what another um, show is going to do a story on is, or maybe doing a story on is interested, um, is a couple of years ago, I just started thinking about my mom and she's passed, both of my parents passed away. And um, my mom in 1970 had a surge, a brain surgery, and we never mm-hmm. talked about it. <clears throat> you know, my, my mom would talk about it, <clears throat> but we never talked about it. And then um, you know, like my mom was, she had, uh, she had alcoholism in addition to other things. And, and, you know, she used, um, prescription medication, but she also had like no inhibition. She was very abusive. She was very erratic and unpredictable. And then she also, um, kind of like, in, I don't know if it was delusional or if she was pretending for attention. It was like, just a con, like, it was like, it was like having a, um, four-year-old, you know, in your house constantly, but she's, your mother. Mm-hmm. So I started looking at this. Um, I talked to my sibling, I have a brother and a sister. And I said, you know, what was mom's, you know, what was mom's brain surgery? It's just this random thing that no one ever talked about. So I started mm-hmm. digging in and found out that in 1970, we were in Massachusetts, in Boston, where my mom often went, um, they had started doing psychosurgery again. And um, it's actually a really interesting story that um, a lot of people, I, I didn't have any idea. I thought, you know, you had your age of lobotomy and then that ended, right? It sounded like a lobotomy almost with the inhibition. Right. Weirdness. Um, there was a guy who got a railroad spike that went through his head and that's what happened to him. Was he like yeah. lacked um, impulse control and inhibitions and things yeah. like that. Um, please continue. Yeah. Oh, so... Um, so I ended up digging in and doing all this research and really found connections and um, consistencies with what my mother 
what her actual, what the surgery was like. And, um, and my brother and sister, we're all convinced because it was the hub of this was, it's such an interesting, it's such an interesting medical thing that happened that we don't hear about, but in, it was in the 1970s at Harvard and two doctors got a, a, a NIH grant, a national Institute for health grant, which is pretty big deal to set up a screening clinic and to do these psychosurgeries, which weren't lobotomies. They would go into, um, the limbic system of the brain, like with wires. And I think they still do something similar to that for, for certain conditions like um, epilepsy, I think now, but they were targeting these centers um, of the, the center of the brain that has emotion control, memory, um, you know, emotional regulation. And they had set up this screening clinic and there was a, um, uh, another doctor from Harvard who basically led the charge to fight this because they had this screening clinic and this was, there were riots during this time, um, especially in Boston, but a lot of places, race riots. And they wanted to start screaming, screening African-American males because they're eugenics, yeah. of course. And it was 1970. And so there was a, a real, um, a real resistance to that. And this one doctor, Dr. Peter Breggins, who's actually, still alive. He, um, he brought a hearing to the Senate. He got their grant withdrawn. He got some regulations in place, but, um, yeah. So, and my mom's psychiatrist who I, I remember her talking about him, he studied under these doctors who did these surgeries. So, um, it looks like that was at least in part. Um, and then I also interviewed, uh, talked to some family members I hadn't talked to in like 30 years and found out she also had another brain injury as a teenager. So I think, I think it's, there's a, a large piece of this is brain injury. Yeah. Wow. That had to be horrible for her. Too. Well, that's, you know, and I think that as much as, you know, I didn't have, I was estranged from my mother for a long time and I don't, you know, I, I guess I don't have a lot of, um, I don't know, compassion or I don't have, I don't know. I just, it's, I sort of broke that off a long time ago. But I do think that what she faced informs my writing a lot because I sometimes think, okay, it was 1970 here. You know, she also had um, a lot of her problems happened after pregnancy. So she had like postpartum psychosis. And I just try to imagine what it would be like in 1970 experiencing this and going to the, the doctors and then having this surgery conduct, you know, so I think, you know, yeah, it was not a good time to be a woman with mental illness. Um, not that there ever is, but yeah. And how did, how did it affect uh, with your father? Oh my gosh. My story is so, you know, I have this insane uh, story, but he, he was somebody, you know, it's funny. I started writing a, a memoir about him doing research about his life because we grew up where he was raised and we, I, I, I talked to my siblings, none of us know one story about his childhood. And like, again, it's one of these things where it's like, that's kind of weird, you know, because it's where we grew, where he grew up and there was never a story that we never ran into anybody that, you know, and I even, you know, even in a city like Portland, I'll run into people, you know, never, not once. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I started writing this memoir about him and I don't know something about it. I just, I think I wasn't ready to unpack that or I mean, there was nothing that big that came out in what I had written, but I think there's like, there was this sort of sinister silence around whatever was going on inside him. And my mom was sort of like a smokescreen because she was so outrageous. And, and she, so 
I feel like there's like, you know, whenever I tell stories about my childhood, it always like sort of drifts back to my mom, you know, and my dad had, um, mm-hmm. he was a chemist and he was, um, so he's extremely intelligent, but he had substance abuse and he, um, he had a lot of affairs and he, he had his own stuff, but, but what that is, mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm like, I don't know if I want to venture into that right now. So. So is there a little of your dad in Richard? Yeah, I think so. Although actually Richard ended up being, um, a different, most, a lot of my other male characters are like my dad, sort of, um, I guess Richard, I, no, I don't think actually, because my dad, Richard was very, um, Richard, the character is very domineering and um, sort of like unabashedly um, sociopathic in a way. And my dad was always kind of like, mm-hmm. he was always one of these people who sort of kept everything inside. He had a lot of anger and he was very um, almost like, tip, like he was almost like timid on the one hand, but then violent with the family on another. So he was a very... So I think he was different, but I think in terms of the gaslighting, he definitely did that to my mom and to us. Um, And I also think, you know, with Richard in this next episode that we're releasing, you really get into like Margaret and also what he's starting to do to Andrea in terms of projecting craziness on her. And she starts acting it out. I don't want to say too much, but um, (laughs) I'm like, I'm always ready to tell the whole story. But uh but that was my dad. It was gaslighting. And then my mom was the crazy one. And it's like, yeah, it wasn't functional at all. While we're on the story though, why, why don't you introduce it? Give, give us um, a brief synopsis, sell it a, a little bit. Okay. Well, um, the diarist is a serialized podcast. Um, it's available on iTunes and, and, you know, anywhere you get your podcasts. It's a, um, I called it a neo-noir uh, fiction, but it's set in 1950s. And a lot of times what I say is it's, um, it's Mad Men meets Gaslight, the movie. Mm. And then I say meets like five shades of gray. Cause it's not, it's not 50 shades. It's like five shades. Um, but it really follows this story of this woman who gets entangled with this business, this advertising executive who has this extremely dark, uh, inner life and family life. And she, um, they end up in a relationship, which I feel like is pretty fair to say. And then she descends into this bizarre, um, story that has then gets the more she descends into it, the more layers are revealed. And she ends up finding out the truth about his, um, his very bizarre family. And he's married to a woman who is mentally ill and, and supposedly psychotic who's in and out of hospitals and so you begin to find out the truth about why that is. Perfect. Don't give any more. No, I know. Um, everybody really does need to check that out. Now, I've noticed that um, a couple of things. In one of your interviews, you mentioned um, not drinking anymore. Mm-hmm. Have a virtual martini. Did you ever have an issue with that? Or is it just you don't feel like drinking? No, I don't. Um, I stopped drinking 16, almost 17 years ago when I was pregnant with my daughter. Hmm. And, um, I just had, I just, you know, someone said, I don't, I don't go to AA, but, um, a friend of mine who was an AA said, you know, your daughter is your higher power. And, um, that made sense to me because, um, when I was pregnant, uh, some, we were at a, a wedding and someone said, Oh, you can have one glass of wine. And I got one and I started to drink it. But then I was like, you can't do this anymore. You know, this person will not understand 
your relationship to alcohol, regardless, you know, cause it was always like, Oh, if I had trauma or, you know how it is, it's like, mm-hmm. and I was like, she wouldn't understand that. And she doesn't, you know, and for whatever reason, maybe because I had the head start with being pregnant and not drinking, but I haven't really had the urge. I always have in the back of my mind though, you know, like, you know, you hear about Robin Williams or these people who didn't drink for 25 years and one day walked into a bar and started again. Sure. So I keep that in my mind, but, um, no, I actually like writing about them drinking because it's like my chance to, to, to have a social life and, right. you know, so you live it out. In, I live it out. Picture. Yeah. And smoking too. I used to be a smoker. Okay. Well, I've done both obviously too. Well, not obviously, but I have, um, you mentioned also that you love thrift stores. Mm-hmm. Do you also do estate sales? I do. Although, um, my husband, he's not domineering at all. He's, I have a wonderful husband, but he has, uh, forbidden me <laughs> because I get, I, it's bordering on an obsession because I just am so enchanted with the past. And, you know, you go into these estate sales and they're time capsules, which is wonderful. And it informs, it definitely informs my writing and, um, but I end up spending too much money. So I have been pretty good lately, but yeah, I love it. I love it. But we do some of that here too. We're trying to establish sort of a rule or I guess it's a guideline because it depends if it's followed or not. Right. If something comes in, something goes out. Right. That's a good, yeah. Because otherwise you're stacked up and, you know, start to have a problem. Yeah. And it gets cluttery. And it also, it's like, okay, well, how much do I really like it? And what, what am I going to sacrifice to have it? Right. That's a great, yeah, that's a great idea. Um, Yeah. I noticed, you know, when you mentioned the thrift stores, I I see that you're writing mm -hmm. mid-century, which is really before your mom's time. So it's, I'm guessing that you're saying in your mind or your experience that was the quote height of patriarchy or could it be said? No. Well, I mean, not, not really. I mean, I, I know, um, different periods. It's been far worse. I think something about the, um, sort of like the, the, the sort of the, the medical chain, the sort of the paradigm or the zeitgeist of those periods is just something about it is very haunting to me because as much as other periods were definitely uh, some often probably worse, there was this new sort of emphasis on uh, like, you know, medical interventions for things that are, you know, feminine or, or, you know, related to women's experience. I mean, I guess there always were, but there's something about the forties and fifties. And then it's also what inspires me. I've also written about the seventies and my memoir was set in the eighties and I've written contemporary short stories and and stuff like that. But when I wrote my story in the forties about the forties, I was living in an old house in a neighborhood that was just, it just felt like the forties, you know, and, and walking down the street, I felt um, that experience. And then I did uh, back then I did a lot of gardening. And so I was just like living in this story that was developing. So I didn't know if you were attracted to the times because they are outwardly so idyllic and inwardly there are shadows. I think that comes out. I don't know if that's what, what inspires me, but I think that definitely that, I mean, I feel like that now, you know, a lot, I have, um, 
I have some ideas about, you know, some of the political movements and some of the ways, you know, just some of the uh, contradictions, you know, and that we can't really sort of suture ourselves out of the time and place and see, um, see what it's really like, you know, and I think that was definitely, although that was imposed more in the fifties than I think any other time, like you are supposed to be this kind of woman. And if you, you know, you don't have much wiggle room and if you're not, but that that kind of woman didn't even exist really, you know? Um, but so I think it comes out. I don't know if that's why I write about that time though. Could some of that have been, you know, post-World War II, um, a response to that, you know, like not necessarily, um, Oh, I forgot that term for it, but essentially it is do not, um, ascribe to evil. What can be explained by stupidity? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, perhaps as a society, because I didn't live then I was born in 70, mm -hmm. but you know, we just went through a major world war. Yeah. The whole planet was reshaped and, we needed to get another generation. A lot of young men died. Yeah. A lot, and so there was age issues, you know, things like that. Um, almost a rebuilding of society. And maybe that's what happened is it was almost like a inadvertent social planner came along and said, stamp, this yeah. is what you do. Stamp, this is a nuclear family. Yeah. Well, specifically nuclear family. Notice the uh, <laughs> nuclear. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I was talking to this woman who does, she does a podcast called We're All Mad Here. I don't know if you've heard it. It's a, I love it. Um, but it's all about mental illness. And so we, uh, Beth and I interviewed her actually to, to get her take on the diarist. And she felt the 50s, at least in part, was a reaction to all these women being in the workforce, mm -hmm. you know, and having um, in the 40s, because the men are all away, and then needing like a, um, something to push them back out so the men could have mm -hmm. the jobs and also so that they can resume their role as, um, you know, the homemakers or, you know, like you said, maybe having children. So it was an interesting time. It was a very, um, makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, oh, good job. Thank you so much. We're done now. Yeah. We're, we're right. Done. Get, go back. And, right. And, and the women were like, well, wait a minute. I did, I did have this independence and I did this. And, and the thing is, I, again, I don't want to ascribe to malice necessarily I, I don't know that people um really meant to i don't right. know that it's always malicious sometimes it's just things happen right and, and they work for whatever you know for whatever reason um yeah and that must be fun in fiction too do you play with that a little where you go down a trope and flip it um i'm trying to think if i a lot of times the tropes i go down are pretty, um, I think, well, I don't know. I, I, do I play with it? I think, well, actually I think so. Like, um, one of the plays I wrote is called love is enough. And it was the one that was selected for the festival at here in Portland. And the story is that this woman, she's a housewife in the 1960s. She has a terrible husband. And, um, so there's those themes again, but, she ends up really wanting to be a romance novel writer and she wants to submit a book to Harlequin for a contest. And she ends up as she's writing, conjuring a, um, a fictional, I laugh because it's just, it's just so the person who played it was so hysterical, but a fictional um, character, a man from a romance novel who's, you know, two dimensional. And so 
it really plays with that trope, you know, and um, it ends up being really funny. And she, you know, he's this guy, but she's typing him and creating him. But, you know, he only has a little wiggle room as to what he can, Mm -hmm. you know, what he can do and say. That's funny. Okay. So definitely satirical edge on that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you planning on converting those to, um, you know, I thought about that one as like a short because it's um it's like a ninety minute play. So I was thinking maybe I could do that one as a short, um, uh, you know, just like a little. I was thinking a summer piece, but I don't think that this will the diaries will be done. Um, so I was thinking of doing that one, and it's a little easier because it has not you know it's been structured so that it only has a few characters, so it's a lot easier. Whereas my novels, you know, there's characters everywhere. Mm-hmm. So what's coming next for you? Well, I am going to do, I think, I'm pretty sure because I have already adapted another novel called If There Are Any Heavens. And that's set in the 40s and it deals with um uh it deals with the same kind of dynamic with relationships, but it also brings in um uh breast cancer. And so breast ca- how breast cancer was dealt with in the 40s. And so um I've already adapted that. So I think I'll just work on that while I'm developing um, something else. Awesome. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Now, where can people find you? Um, um, they can find The Diarist at thediaristpodcast.com. They can find uh, my writing at donnabarrowgreen.com. And then from there, there's links to, um, you know, to my other writing and blogs. Fantastic. I'll definitely look out for it and hopefully we'll be getting more episodes soon. Wait, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Hey everyone, Eric here. I want to thank you again so much for listening. I know your time is valuable, so I really appreciate you taking some. If you like what you hear, please spread the word. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. It's unstructured P as in podcast. Also, you can review the podcast in whichever app you use. It really helps a bunch to spread the word. Thanks again. Fearsome stranger standing next to me Singing songs so sweet And telling stories I don't know the end How shall we pretend Things aren't as they seem